0: everyone. Amen. If you've not met me before, my name's Anil. I'm the Associate Minister here at Christchurch, and it's lovely to add my welcome to those we've heard already today. Now please bow your heads to pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. When you think about uh, friendship, The place that we need to start with, as all these things, is in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we get the aerial photo of how God created this marvelous universe in which we live. And on the sixth day, we read uh, the Godhead, that is the Holy Trinity. We read them speaking amongst themselves. And saying, in chapter 1, verse 26, "...let us make mankind in our image." And then in verse 27, the Bible says, "So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God, He created them." Now there's lots we could say about the image of God. I'll dive right into the deep dependence of my sermon. But what I'll focus here is one thing. In the Godhead, we have a God of free persons, father, son and spirit, uh, who have always existed in relationship with one another before the creation of this world, before the dawn of time. God the Father does not say, let me make mankind in my image. Do you notice that? The Godhead says, let us make mankind in our image. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. God in himself is a relational God. God. He doesn't need humanity to have a relationship. And so for us, he made in his image, to have something of who God is encoded into our DNA, God had to make us in relationship too. Before mankind existed, relationships were at the core of who God is in himself. And so God created mankind as two people to mirror something of that relationship. Can you see that? You know, I was reading a book the other day where I saw this for the first time. I've been a Christian uh, for so many years. But I never realized this truth and it blew my mind. It was blindingly obvious when you look closely at the text. Then in Genesis chapter 2, God zooms in on the sixth day of creation and gives a little more detail to how he created mankind. And you want to know the story? God formed man from the dust and he, he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Then God picks up this man he's made and he places him into the garden in the east in Eden. And God gives the man a job to do, doesn't he? To work the garden and to take care of it. And then God looks at the man he's made and says, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we all know the words, it is not good. For man to be alone, I will make a helper for him. Sorry, a helper suitable for him. And so God made the woman from the man as a suitable helper to share with him in his job of working the garden, taking care of it. For them to be partners together in the work God had given them to do. In the same way the Godhead works out uh, our God's plans in partnership. We started here right at the beginning of our sermon in Genesis because God did not create human beings to be alone. God said loneliness of this kind was not good. So as we begin looking at friendships today in the last of our four-part series, we begin by recognizing that in his wisdom, God created humans to be in communities, to have relationships and friendships because that is what God himself is like. And it's what God says is good for us. Friendships are good. Amen. They're a gift from God that God has generously given to us. And when we do relationships well, we are experiencing something of who God is himself as we reflect his image amongst each other. With that being said, as an introduction, let's dive straight into the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, and you can find it on page 672 of the Church Bibles. You remember uh, John's sermon from three, four weeks ago when he started our series, and he began the book of Ecclesiastes as well. And we saw Ecclesiastes charts, the exploration of this figure, the teacher, as he tries to discover what brings real meaning to a person's life on this earth under the sun. And in our little section, he looks at friendships. He starts with a man who has no family and no friends, and he calls this Meaningless. If you're on the church mailing list this week, as, uh, as uh, our sister Catherine has just said, uh, you'll have seen that every day this week we've been sharing emails from our new uh, emotional and mental well-being team to encourage you to pray during this Mental Health Awareness Week. The theme for this week in Mental Health Awareness Week has been loneliness. This man in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 7 is obviously lonely. Now, as a teacher telling us that lonely people are meaningless. No, not at all. The man we encounter here is lonely by choice. Because, verse 8, his eyes were not content with his wealth. He's working all the hours and saving up all his hard-earned money with no one to spend it on and no one to pass it on to. Why? Because he's not content with the wealth he has and so he's striving for more. My mind goes to Scrooge. Isn't yours? I see the Michael Caine version. I can't even say Michael Caine without that accent. Michael Caine version of Scrooge in the Muppets Christmas Candle, sitting in his cold accounting firm with a, a single lump of coal on the fire, crying, humbug, a miserly, miserable fool engaging in meaningless This man is lonely by choice, and his choices have left him with no one to enjoy. This gift, wealth is a gift, this gift of wealth with. Have you ever asked yourself, when is enough enough? Maybe in your desire to get a big house, a big car, the savings in the bank, maybe you pushed everyone else away. You turned down the drinks with your mates because you didn't want to spend your money on that extra round. You didn't go out with a friend or potential partner because... You'd rather not waste your money on expensive dinner. You wouldn't help a friend financially when they really needed your help because you had lost some interest or couldn't use your money how you wanted to. If you are holding things to yourself at the cost of relationships, God says that your actions are meaningless. A miserable business, and you might already know that. Remember, it's not good for a man or woman to be alone. But we can have relationships and friendships and still be alone, can't we? When we choose to isolate ourselves from those whom God has placed us amongst. When we work all the hours at the cost of our families and friends. When we lock ourselves away in our home office or our study. Who's been doing that in lockdown and since? Not spending our free time with our friends and family, but pursuing lonesome hobbies. Brothers and sisters, this too is meaningless. Meaningless a miserable business. The teacher gives us an alternative vision of life from verses 9 to 12, looking at friendships and giving four reasons why it's better to have a friend than to be alone. The first reason friendship is good is partnership, verse 9. He says, two are better than one. Working together, serving together, partnering in their work together like Adam and Eve in the garden. Now I do most of the cooking in my house and very often my wife offers to help me. She's a wonderful lady and she likes to do that. But I used to usually brush it off. You know, too many cooks and all that. But the more I let her help me, the quicker the meal is ready. And actually, the more I enjoy cooking when we're sharing it together. Friendship offers partnership. The second reason the teacher gives for friendship in verse 10 is compassion. If either one falls down, one can help the other up. This isn't just true of, of physical falls, is it? But all the knockbacks in life. When you're overlooked for that job that you interviewed for. When your doctor diagnoses you with cancer. When your elderly parents move into end-of-life care. It's those close friends that we call who encourage us, who support us, who pick us up. Pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Now, I used to head up the men's ministry in my last church, Holy Trinity, and there was a wonderful brother in that church whose name was Malcolm, and he'd been going for a couple of years, but was really on the fringe of things. He had a few friends, but was on the fringe. And I quite liked Malcolm, so I invited him in to join me in the men's ministry. I got to know him a little better and we had some coffees and drinks together and I found out that, that he had cancer and had had it for a while. I asked Malcolm if he'd told anyone else uh, apart from his wife that he'd had cancer and, and he hadn't. He didn't want to bother or burden anyone and he felt he didn't know people in church well enough to tell them. My heart broke for Malcolm. I, I, I pitied him. My experience with Malcolm reshaped how we did our entire men's ministry at that church, and it gave us a new focus that we were trying to do. It wasn't about men's breakfast and men's curries, just to have uh, good food and a good chat, and to meet up once a month or so. Our focus became on deepening and maturing relationships, meaningful friendships amongst the 200 old men we had in our church. We uh, formed a off after Malcolm's experience. David and Jonathan-like relationships across the life of our church. That was our focus, that was our aim. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of David and Jonathan from the Old Testament. Uh, Jonathan was the son of of the king then, uh, Saul, and the next heir in line to the throne of Israel. David was a, a shepherd boy with no earthly right to the throne, but a divine appointment. Jonathan knew that. Jonathan knew that he would need to step away from his dreams of one day being the future king, that he would need to renounce his birthright for David. And rather than being bitter and twisted and jealous about David, like his father Saul was, Jonathan loved David. Jonathan loved David so much that in one section of chapter 18, he gave David his armour. He gave him his his robe, his sword, his bow, and his belt, all the precious adornments of a warrior king. Passed them over to his friend David, who he loved as he loved himself, it says. Uh, Jonathan sadly dies. You'll know the story in 2 Samuel. And in chapter 1, after David learns of his friend Jonathan's death, uh, in bitter grieving he sings, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was more wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. You know, lots of people read the story, this story today and they say that David and Jonathan were in a romantic relationship together. Leaving aside what you think about same-sex relationships, it's a sad mark of our modern society that two men or two women can't be seen as having a deep, Intimate emotional relationship without the world around them thinking it's romantic. I have no shame in saying that I love men. There are a number of men that I love deeply and I desire deep relational intimacy with them. We shouldn't be ashamed of emotional relational intimacy. Jesus wasn't, as we'll see in a moment. Part of the problem facing the modern church is our overemphasis on romantic relationships. That if you're not married or in a family, there is a meaninglessness there. That's why so many single people find it hard and uncomfortable in churches. That's why so many same-sex attracted people that I know find it hard to be in churches. Because we make it look like physical intimacy and romantic relationships like marriage and family are the only relationships that matter. As God's people, we need to do better at cultivating and maturing emotionally intimate relationships, especially with those in our church family who have no one else. The teacher shows us that friendships offer companionship. Verse 10. Thirdly, a friendship, sorry, companionship, verse 11. If two lie down together, they'll keep each other warm. I often have this reading at weddings, but here the teacher isn't talking about sexual intimacy. Instead, he's thinking of two laborers, two male laborers, out at the time of harvest, lying together, keeping each other warm, as they cuddle together in the cold night air against the chill, showing companionship. Physical touch is so important, isn't it? Before lockdown, there was lots to talk about uh, the value of the virtual, virtual relationships, virtual church, Facebook, online relationships. If the pandemic hasn't taught us anything, it's at least taught us that we are physical creatures. That we have skin that responds to the lightest touch. To the firmest grip. To sit with someone who is sick and to hold their hand. To be with someone who is sad and to to squeeze their shoulder. To high-five someone who's celebrating, giving someone a hug who you haven't seen in ages. Companionship is a practical way we demonstrate friendship. I should say that with physical touch and emotional intimacy, we need to be alert to the, the risks of opposite sex Intimate friendships, especially when one of the pair is married. Now you might think I'm being silly. You might say, that would never happen. Anil, you're being approved. And I thank God it often doesn't. But in my short life and in my short time ministry, I have known and counseled so many people for whom an opposite sex friendship has led to the breakup of a marriage. Please hear my gentle appeal to caution. So companionship. And then finally, the teacher shows us that friendship is better than choosing to be alone because friendship offers support, verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Many of us know what it's like to have a friend step in to defend us. Maybe not physically from a threat, but from that comment on social media or in an office environment or uh, against a difficult family member. The support of a friend is to be cherished. So that's the teacher's four reasons why it's better to choose friendship than to be alone. A friendship offers partnership, companionship, compassion, and support. And we can all live our lives this way. We don't have to be Christians to do this. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, this is true wisdom for the world. But a Christian friendship has something more to it. A Christian friendship is sacrificial look at Jesus. He allows his friend John to to rest his head against his chest as they relax together after dinner without a hint of romance. He allows a woman to caress his feet and to kiss them without it being an erotic scene in the Bible. Jesus loved his friends, both men and women, deeply, and he wasn't afraid to display it or to talk about it. If you flick in your Bibles to page 1083 of the church Bibles, you can look at how he does this with his disciples in John chapter 15. Jesus is in a private room with his 12 male disciples, his closest friends here. He's just stripped himself to his waist, revealing his bare chest and his arms, and he's draped a towel from around his waist to over his shoulder. And he's kneeling down to wash his friends' feet with Beauty and tenderness and humility. As Jesus sits down with his friends, now he speaks of love. Not a a sickly, romantic, chocolates kind of roses love. But a powerful, physical, full-blooded love. A sacrificial love, verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one but this. That he lay down his life for his friends. True friendship, according to Jesus, is rooted in love and true love is demonstrated in sacrifice. Giving up our wants, our desires for the sake of someone else. Could there be a greater demonstration of love than the willing sacrifice of God himself for the creatures he's made? There couldn't be, could there? I heard a story of a, a little girl who, who goes up to Jesus, made up story, it's not in the Bible, but goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how much do you love me? Do you love me this much or this much? And Jesus opens his arm as wide as he can, and he says, "No, I love you this much." And he died on the cross. Jesus says the most remarkable thing to us in verse fifteen. I think we've sung about this morning. Jesus says in verse fifteen, "I no longer call you servants; instead, I call you friends." It's remarkable, isn't it, to be called a friend of God? we celebrating the Queen's Jubilee this year, and you know, the Queen has many servants, of course, she calls them employees nowadays, but they are servants. And it was only in 2015 that she began to pay, or well, sorry, the palace began to pay uh, her staff the living wage, and many of them still aren't being paid that level. So I was thinking, why would someone work for the Queen and not get paid well for it? I mean, she's got money to spare. And I thought, well, because let's face it, she's the Queen. I mean, what a privilege, what an honor. Who do you work for? I work for Barclays. Who do you work for? I work for the Queen. The joy of serving the Queen herself outweighs the need for the right remuneration. Imagine one day you were there, and I know you're, you're brushing one of her corgis, and, and imagine Queen Elizabeth coming to you, removing that brush from your hand, and then beginning to brush your hair with it. I mean, you'd be dumbstruck, wouldn't you? You'd probably protest, I know I would. In the same way, Peter protested Jesus. Then imagine her sitting on the couch, and imagine she offered you to come and and to lay your head on her lap or her chest. I mean, how would you respond? This is the Queen of England offering you to lie on her lap. And then imagine that after doing these things, the Queen says to you, you know, I'm not going to do her accent. I, I really love you. I love you so much that I would give anything, anything to keep you safe and happy. I would even give my own life for you. You know, you know what? I, I don't even think of you as a servant anymore. I think of you as my friend. I, I couldn't begin to imagine the mixture of emotions I would feel if that happened to me. This is, this is our monarch. This is the leader of our country, our united kingdom, calling me her friend. How much more so when God himself does it? Brothers and sisters, Jesus, the only Son of God, the Creator, God, and Lord of this whole universe, the ruler of the universe, he says to you this morning, if you do what I command, you are my friend, and I love you. I love you so much that I willingly died on a cross to rescue you, to protect you, And to give you the best life you could ever live. And to keep you, as my beloved friend, right on through to eternity. Brothers and sisters, this is true friendship. It's unashamed. It's full-blooded. It's sacrificial. It's generous. It's lavish. It's outrageous. It's love. This is the love that Jesus has for you. And it's the love he calls his friends, which is you if you believe in him, to show to one another. A friendship offers partnership, but Jesus partners with us by his spirit to invite us to join him in his father's work. According to the teacher of Ecclesiastes, a friendship offers compassion, but Jesus offers the compassion of God himself, who in his humanity experienced the hardest of fools to lift us up. A friendship offers companionship, but Jesus has made his home inside of our very bodies and has promised to always be with us and to never leave or forsake us. A friendship offers support, but Jesus allowed himself to be overcome by the devil and the evil of this world, so that by his death, he can stand before our God in our place as our great defender, protecting us from evil, and guarding us on until eternity. Brothers and sisters, this is true friendship. This is what it looks like. This is true love, and it's found only in Jesus. Nowhere else. Not in your friends, not in your family. Only in Jesus, who loves you, and who calls you his friend, if you do what he commands